This podcast is brought to you by Clio. Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. As you listen to this podcast, or are you on a phone? What kind of phone? How do you know who made it? Are you listening in your car? Is your car really made by the company whose label is on your dashboard? I mean, how do you know? When you grab a Starbucks, have you ever feared that you might be walking into a fake Starbucks that replaces your favorite blend of coffee with Folgers crystals? Probably not. And you can thank Fritz Lanham and his namesake law, the Lanham Act, for that comfort. The intellectual property lawyers out there know the Lanham Act right away. For the rest of us, let's remind ourselves that the Lanham Act provides trademark protections. Most of us take the Lanham Act for granted, thinking it's been around forever. But this year, 2021, the act turns 75. To celebrate and commemorate this important cornerstone of our legal landscape, we have two special guests who will talk to us about the Lanham Act, Fritz Lanham himself, and remind us why trademark law is indeed so important. Joe Cleveland is an intellectual property litigation partner with Brackett and Ellis in Fort Worth. He has also authored Fritz Garland Lanham, Father of American Trademark Protection, published by the Texas Intellectual Property Law Foundation. Joe serves as vice chair of the Intellectual Property Law Section and was appointed by the Texas Supreme Court to the Texas Board of Disciplinary Appeals. Alongside Joe, we have Craig Stone, who is Senior In-House Counsel for Intellectual Property for Phillips 66 Company. Craig's practice focuses on all aspects of brand protection and other IP-related areas. Craig is also serving a three-year term on the State Bar of Texas Intellectual Property Section Council following his role as chair of the Trademarks Committee. So we have two amazing experts. Couldn't have asked for anyone better to come talk to us about the Lanham Act. Now, this might sound a little dry, but from, from everything I've been able to read that you guys have been putting together, this is actually fascinating stuff. So Joe Cleveland, Craig Stone, welcome. This is a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you, Rocky. Really appreciate you hosting today and look forward to explaining a little bit more about Fritz Lanham and the history of the Lanham Act and what it protects and what it does. But really appreciate your having us here today. Thank you for the kind introduction. Oh, absolutely. So let's cut to the chase. It seems like to most of us, IP law and and certainly trademark law is a part of that. It sounds very erudite. If I could use the word nerdy, it sounds nerdy, but (laughs) you know, it's from, from every intellectual property lawyer I've ever spoken to, this is exciting stuff. You know, when, when you really scratch beneath the surface. So Joe, let's maybe start with you. Let's talk about what's attracted you to IP law and what got you involved in it in the first place. Well, I I think it's an exciting and interesting area of the law that really opens the doors to a lot of different businesses. If you like to to learn about different types of businesses and what they do, trademark is a very easy door to open. You learn about, you know, for example, I've worked with cosmetic companies. I've worked with, uh, in learning about their trademarks, I've I've worked with locker manufacturers and learned about their trademarks. So you just learn a lot about the business, how the biz, how that product or services are marketed to the public. And that's what trademarks are really designed to do. They're designed to identify, help consumers identify the products that they want 
and avoid the products they don't want. And so just like your example, when you talked about the Starbucks, you know, when you walk into a Starbucks, you automatically know you're going to get your blend of coffee at that coffee store just exactly like you like it every single time. And Starbucks has spent millions and millions of dollars to ensure that your experience in a, in a, in a, coffee, in a Starbucks coffee shop is consistent. And they use that brand. The, the circle with the woman uh, mermaid in that circle. The mermaid, that's right. So that consumers recognize that consistent brand and quality of, that they've grown accustomed to seeing. And so it's a, it's a designator of source. It's so customers and consumers know that they're going to get the cup of coffee that they want. So, Craig, what about your experience? What got you interested in, in IP law and specifically trademarks? I mean, you're, you're doing this in-house, but what drew you into this? Well, I'll use a different word than nerdy that attracted me to intellectual property and specifically trademarks. I use the word sexy. I think marketing. Oh, dang. Is, okay. You're throwing it all, you're throwing it all down. <laughs> you're talking about marketing. You're talking about, you know, this world of commerce that completely surrounds us today. And you're talking about consumers who have a very strong emotional connection to the products and services that they, they buy and see and love. And so for me, the business aspect really attracted me to the area of intellectual property. The other thing I really enjoy about intellectual property is you can practice in different areas. You're not just a litigator. You're not just a transactional lawyer. You, you are all of those. You're, you're counseling startup companies on how they will protect their brand in the future. And for a company like Philip 66, where we have brands that are going back all the way to 1885, you're now responsible for maintaining the protection of trademarks and brands that have been around for, for decades. You are the steward of that iconic logo or device. And so there's just such a rich history with brands. But for me, it's just being able to be surrounded by it every day, walking into a store and seeing the fruits of your labor how you helped launch a product or protect the product for not just the brand owner, but for consumers. Let's maybe then jump right into the Lanham Act itself. So for those of us that, that are maybe uninitiated, yes, we kind of have an idea what trademarks are, but what specifically does the Lanham Act do and why was it so important when it came out? We know in the Constitution that patents and copyrights are specifically referenced in terms of the protection that American citizens would receive. Uh, trademarks, right. okay. interestingly, were not mentioned. And huh. so the original, the first federal statute that was enacted, not until 1870, actually relied on that constitutional language of patents and copyrights. And it was ultimately struck down because it was inappropriately enacted based on that clause. It should have been enacted under the Commerce Clause. So it's not that there isn't a constitutional basis. They just used the wrong one when they started out. So out of the gate, the original statute was flawed. And as you hmm. move forward through the 19th century, you keep having practical issues with the other statutes that they enact. So for example, the next flavor of the statute, it did extend protection, but you had to meet certain standards of selling goods and services actually outside of the United States or to um, Native American Indian tribes. So it was quite narrow. And 
America was still looking for something that was comprehensive in nature, that would give broad scope protection across the entire country. And that's really what the Lanham Act did in 1946. It looked back at some of the failures of these original statutes, and it's brought together a, a really robust way in which product owners can protect their brands today consistently and uniformly. Another problem that I may add, Craig, gave an excellent explanation, historical reference of the at what was in place before the Lanham Act was enacted. Another problem that was sought to be addressed by the Lanham Act was a lot of states were getting into the game. They were enacting their own trademark legislation, and it became a very complex, burdensome regulatory environment in which businesses were having to register their marks in every state that they did business in. For example, Mm. Coca-Cola that's been around since 1893, they were having to register their marks in every state. And that's what the vision of what Fritz Lanham had was he envisioned that there needed to be a national registry and a, and a right, a right to trademark in a federal statute. And that's what he brought into the forefront. And he was not the only one. There's, uh, there's some other people that helped along the way. There's another gentleman that uh, was with the ABA, the American Bar Association, mm-hmm. that helped lay the foundation really for the for the Lanham Act that was ultimately signed into law in 1946 by Harry S. Truman. What the Lanham Act, you know, people think, well, the Lanham Act just protects these names that we see a lot of, like the the name Starbucks or Phillips sure. 66. It's a it's a much broader statute than that. And I, I just want to uh, give you some examples of where all this, where all the trademarks that you see and even smell every day uh, are mm. protected by the Lanham Act, or even here, for example, the name Apple on Apple computers. That's sure. a that's a registered trademark. The logo for McDonald's Golden Arches that's mm. a registered trademark. The slogan for Nike's "Just Do It" is right. a registered trademark. The color for Dow Corning's pink insulation that you see out rolled out on it with the Pink Panther playing in the background that's a huh. registered. That color is a registered trademark. I just thought that was the color that the insulation came in. No, they they put that color into that insulation to designate it as a source. Okay, and they I, got a registered I, trademark for that. I don't know if that's if that's nerdy or sexy, but that is really fascinating. I had no idea. That's cool. Okay. And the NBC chimes, you know, the yes. the chimes okay. that you hear before the Saturday Night Live comes on, that's a registered trademark. Yeah. The roar okay. of the MGM lion that you see at the beginning of a film, that's a registered trademark. Shouldn't that belong to the lion? The lion did the roar. I mean, come on. <laughs> and then even scents can be a trademark, like the scent of Play-Doh. You hearken back to your days yes. when you smelled Play-Doh. You, yeah, you yeah. would recognize that immediately. If somebody put a handkerchief over your eyes and said, smell this, what is it? You would immediately say, that's Play-Doh. That's, that's, the, that's called secondary meaning. That's what we call in the trademark field, secondary meaning, where consumers will instantly recognize what the source of that product or goods or services instantly from that mark. And and thank goodness Play-Doh is non-toxic because I'm not going <laughs> to name names, but some of us may have eaten Play-Doh as kids too. So the, the smell and the taste, I guess, comes, it, it, th- those are all secondary. That's, that's interesting. So there was some sexiness to it. I agree with Craig, and I, and, 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 <laughs> but you have to be careful what you smell. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Craig, you talked a second ago about everything that happened prior to the Lanham Act and the problems with those laws. But 
Can we talk for a moment about when did trademark protection first come up and what were companies doing before there was comprehensive trademark protection? So before there was even a statute, you know, did you have did you have a lot of knockoff brands coming out into the marketplace? I mean, I'm I'm trying to think back to say the early 1800s. If you had if you had some kind of iconic brand that people were using in their homes or in their daily lives, was there just a lot of counterfeiting? Yeah, I, I don't know how much counterfeiting was going on, but it's interesting that this notion of trademark protection actually goes back to a letter that uh, we can see Thomas Jefferson wrote, and it had to do with the protection of of sails that you know, in, in, on a boat. Um, huh. And and of course, you know, one of the most important things about purchasing products for consumers is what it's the quality, right? So that when you purchase the product, sure. you see the symbol you recognize the symbol, and you can have confidence in knowing that you are going to get something that's actually going to do what it says it's going to do, right? Right. right? So, you know, we're under the common law system, of course. Sure. And so a lot of these laws are originally derived under the British common law system, and, and that's what the American law system is, is coming up from. But Joe touched on this earlier, is that, yeah, you have a bunch of state common laws. So the state courts are giving you a cause of action to protect your brands. But when you have this interstate commerce that starts going on, especially in the early days of, of America, and goods and services are, are crossing lines, potentially, how do you fight somebody else in another state? And so this is an interesting time where the country in its early history is wrestling between state common law and federal right. common law. States' and rights and federalism. Exactly, and if you think sure. back way to the beginning of, of the first year of law school and you're talking about the Erie case, I mean, this is this is going way back. I, I, right. I, I can't even remember all of it. But basically, you know, Erie striking down that federal courts can't create federal common law when there is a dispute between two, people of two different states. Sure. So you've got this gap. But with interstate commerce, you need something to, to fill in. You know, you need some, some federal overarching law. And so what the Lanham Act has done, it creates not only a statutory basis to protect your registered trademarks, it really, the expansion and the dynamic was to protect your unregistered rights. So even if you didn't go through the process of registering mm. your trademark, like we all do as sophisticated brand owners and IP practitioners, you as a business owner can go in and assert very strong rights under the Lanham Act, which, which was expanded under court decisions, of course, right. and recognizes what we really understand as lawyers as, as sort of a common law claim, but that's been codified. We call that unfair competition protection, which, again, was historically under state law. And you can still do that in individual states. Texas has unfair competition laws that we sure. can assert against each other. But this is at a federal level because, I mean, just think about commerce today. We are so interconnected. I mean, this is a global economy now. And so that's really the evolution of the law and why businesses, as they expand, really saw the need and importance for those legal protections. And trademark law not just protects the, the product name or the brand identity, it can also protect the product packaging. For example, the shape of a Coca-Cola bottle is registered trade dress. The look and feel of a McDonald's restaurant is registered mm. trade dress. 
So if I went to open up a McDougal's and had a golden arch right next to McDonald's and was selling hamburgers, I would get a cease and desist letter the next day from the in-house counsel at McDonald's to stop doing that because I'm basically pawning off their mark and trying to confuse the customer into believing that McDougal's selling hamburgers is now affiliated with, with McDonald's. And that's really the whole basis of trademark law. It's really about customer or consumer protection. It's a consumer protection law. It's trying to help consumers understand that the choice that they're making is a factually true choice, and they're not being deceived by somebody that's coming in uh, secondhand trying to sell counterfeit goods or goods just playing off the name of a very popular brand. So now, Joe, you've you've taken me back to the year, I think it was 1986, when Coming to America came out, and now I want to go watch it and and be reminded of McDowell's <laughs> once again. <laughs> so let's talk for a second, Joe, about, you know, you, you mentioned some of the people involved in the Lanham Act. So let's talk for a moment, if you would, about Fritz Lanham, and I know you've written about him. So when I heard the Lanham Act, until we've had this conversation, it never occurred to me that that's a person. I just, and, and it makes sense because legislation is usually named after the legislators who are behind it. But now it's, I'm like, okay, now I'm getting a name. It's Fritz Lanham. So tell us about him and tell us what got him into, into trademark protection and got him interested in this. You know, I'd like to say, first of all, that, you know, if you ask any intellectual property in the United States, Mm-hmm. Uh, asked 10,000 intellectual properties in the United States from Florida to Florida to Alaska and from Maine to California. Have they ever heard of the Lanham Act? All 10,000 intellectual properties, lawyers would say yes. Sure. And before Craig introduced me to the fact that Fritz Lanham was from Texas, he told me that in uh, last year. I would say as of last year, I would say just a handful of lawyers in Texas knew that Fritz Lanham was from Weatherford, Texas. Until you said this, I didn't know either. So that's great. <laughs> and he was born. He was born in 1880. His father was a U.S. congressman and a, and a governor of the state of Texas. Hmm. He won a special election in 1990. He's a lawyer. He went to University of Texas Law School, an undergraduate, and um, he didn't graduate from law school, but he took the bar and became a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, practiced law for a bit in Weatherford, and then he won a special election in 1919 and. Uh, had a very esteemed congressional career in Washington. He was a Democrat. And during that era, it was uh, salad days of the Democratic Party in Texas. Hmm. They had the Speaker of the House uh, was from Texas. The major leaders on the Senate uh, side were from, from Texas. And Fritz Landon was right there in the mix. And he, during his career, he not only served on the Patent Committee, but he also served on the buildings committee and was the one that really, uh, during the depression, helped get the country back on track by building all these post offices. A lot of the U.S. court buildings in in Texas and around the country were built during this time with Fritz Lanham's efforts. Hmm. In fact, uh, Fritz Lanham uh, served on the U.S. Supreme Court Building Commission with uh, then uh, past president and current Chief Justice Howard, uh, Taft. And uh, his name wow. is in, okay. inscribed on the walls of the U.S. Supreme Court. The only Texan who's hmm. ever, his name is inscribed in the building of the U.S. Supreme Court. And they finished that building in 1935 or so uh, for $3.9 million, which was under million budget. million with an M? With an M. <laughs> 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 which Different was time. on time and under budget. And right. so he, uh, he is a very powering figure in Texas history. 
that was almost lost to history because uh, although there's a, a building named after him in Fort Worth, there was no book written about him. All his congressional papers are maintained at the Dawes Library, uh, Dawes Briscoe Library in UT, but they are his entire box of documents. It's, o- it's only a half a box of documents for this man that wrote a law that has been cited by the Supreme Court over 50 times and cited by U.S. courts and state and federal court over 54,000 times. It was almost lost to history. And that's what, and I, I guess what got me really interested in the project was when I was reaching out to the descendants and talking to them mm. and hearing the stories and getting pictures and information from them. And that's really kind of, kind of piqued my interest in saying uh, that there's a gap here. There's a gap in history that needs to be explained. I think all Texans need to be proud of what this man did. And our country needs to be proud of what this man did. We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to him, uh, businesses and consumers alike, because he has put trademark law in this country on a firm constitutional footing that allowed our country to to thrive. And really, the Lanham Act has become a template for countries around the world. The Lanham Act is, is the basis of many countries' trademark laws around the world. So he's a internationally known, well, his law is internationally known. Sure. He's not a, was not a known figure in the state of Texas. And we hope that's going to change with, you know, some of the things that we're going to talk about. So Joe and Craig, let's take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clio, the number one cloud-based software for lawyers with solutions for client intake, case management, time tracking, billing, and payments. Clio is a member benefit of the State Bar of Texas, and if you're an SBOT member, you'll be eligible to receive a 10% discount on Clio products. Visit www.clio.com SBOT to claim your discount and start a free seven-day trial. That's www.clio.com slash SBOT. And we're back with Joe Cleveland and Craig Stone talking about the Lanham Act. And so let's, you know, maybe Craig, talk to us about the evolution of the Lanham Act. So you, you talked earlier about how the predecessors to the Lanham Act, you know, the constitutional challenges they faced. Then you finally get to the point where you've got this federal legislation that has teeth and that has been approved and has been shown to be, to pass constitutional muster. As we as we move forward, how has the Lanham Act been amended over time? And how do you think it's going to change as time goes on? Well, let me just back up one, one sure. bit in terms of the timing. So, okay. of course, it's obvious today of how much we've benefited from the law over the last 75 years. But keep in mind, Lanham introduced this bill in 1938. So it took them okay, eight years sure. of really advocating for this law. It was not a slam dunk. And there was resistance. There was resistance from the Justice Department because you're coming out of an era where you've got big companies, monopolistic companies, and that's what intellectual property effectively does. It creates a legal monopoly mm. where you are an exclusive owner of a single device or a single patent. And so theoretically, it's not, it, it, they're having challenges to get this passed. So he really, you know, was a champion of this. I think he had a vision, but it, as much as we see it, it wasn't a guarantee. And so now that we see the, lack, the act in action, 
Yeah, the evolution really happened through the courts and their decisions and and recognizing all these broader unfair competition claims. But we actually just had a new law passed at the end of December called the Trademark Modernization Act. And it's recognizing things that are going on. One really important aspect of that particular statute is it reintroduced this theory of a presumption of harm. And so what had happened a few years ago under a patent decision, this is kind of nerding out, but it basically it was a decision striking down that when you're asking a judge to enter injunctive relief, so stopping somebody from using your intellectual property, mm-hmm. he said, we cannot presume harm. And that you puts, have to prove harm if you're you the, have to prove harm. Right. Okay. And, and that's places an enormous burden on a trademark owner to show consumers are being harmed. That's and we're talking about intangible assets, right? The consumers are 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 not benefiting, you know, because there is an infringement out there. And so, so the this, focus is on the consumer. It's not on the holder that's of right. the trademark. Okay. It's it's on both. So the public okay. policy is what we're preventing is consumer confusion. That's the confidence aspect. When okay. I reach out to the shelf, I have confidence. Okay. Now likewise, we know as a brand owner that's mm-hmm. an extremely valuable asset. Sure. Okay, so the last statistic I saw is that when you look at the Fortune 500, 84% of that entire value of all those companies, we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars, is measured in the intangible property, the intangible mm-hmm. assets. Like Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon. $100 billion, yeah. Yeah. Those names are extremely valuable. And so this Trademark Modernization Act is effectively saying, all right, we're going to, now we're going to presume that there is a certain level of harm to both the consuming public as well as to the trademark holder. Or the, I guess in this case, yeah, it's a Trademark Modernization Act. So it's the trademark holder. You don't have to prove that. I guess you no longer have to prove a a prima facie case of of harm. It's It's a presumption of harm. Of course, it can be rebutted. But basically, and this is really a a really important reason of why all brand owners want to go in and register your mark federally. When you go through what is a very robust process, okay? So Mm -hmm. I file a federal application with United States Trademark Office, and they go through a very robust review. They're trying to see, is your mark functioning as a trademark? Is it strong enough, right? Mm -hmm. Are you using it in commerce? You have to meet all these hurdles. So once you obtain that federal registration, that is a valuable right that then you can walk into court and say, look at my right. You don't have to go through all these extra steps to prove you are the owner or that this is a valid enforceable trademark. It's like walking into court with a giant sword and Mm -hmm. a very powerful right. And and Craig raises an interesting point that's uh, worth uh, addressing a little bit further is when you're talking to new business owners, about mm-hmm. what they want to choose as a trademark for their product or goods or services. You always advise them, pick out a strong mark, a strong mark that has really strength. And there's kind of a hierarchy of marks of the, their stronger marks and some sort of very, very weak marks. So I'll just, if I can kind of step through the, the process, but the, the strongest mark is what's called a fanciful or coined mark. Mm-hmm. And that's a made up term. Like Exxon was a made up word. Texaco as a made-up word, those are some of the strongest marks. They don't even—they ex- didn't even exist mm-hmm. until somebody made that word up. 
they have no other meaning. Their sole purpose for existing is to be a brand, to be mm -hmm. a trademark, to identify a product or a service. Then you drop down one level down, and that's the arbitrary mark. An arbitrary mark is a name that's, a, that's put on a product that has no relation to the product itself. Example would be camel cigarettes. Camels do mm. not smoke cigarettes, but that's an arbitrary assignment of that. Mark. How do we know that? Have, have you ever <laughs> seen? I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then the other, another example of an arbitrary mark is Apple computer. Apples have nothing to do with computers. Mm. And then you drop down another level and, and you get into a little icier territory. It's next level down is called a suggestive mark. And that suggests in the minds of the consumers what the product might be. An example of that would be like Tide detergent, like the rinsing tides okay, or rinsing the clothes. It's or evocative. Igloo ice cream. Right. It's evocative, like igloo ice cream. It, it, mm -hmm. it conjures in the mind of the consumer, well, maybe this has to do with something about a frozen dessert. Mm. So, And then I always tell clients you have to draw a very dark line because after that, you're getting an extremely dicey territory. Mm -hmm. Next level down is called a descriptive mark. Mm. And that describes the goods or services that you're selling, like the bike shop okay. or steel buildings that sell steel buildings. Right. That is an extremely difficult trademark to maintain. It's an extremely difficult mark to get because you have to prove to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office that that mark has been used so much and you spend so much money uh, promoting this mark that consumers automatically associate that mark with that particular producer of those goods or services. I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how we think trademark law, whether it's the Lanham Act or whether it's this, this new Trademark Modernization Act, how is it going to evolve in this era of increasingly tighter global business? I mean, I think, Craig, it was you who talked about things getting global. I think what's so impressive and really is a testament of how successful the Lanham Act is, is just look back in the last 10 to 20 years and how commerce has changed. And think about mm -hmm. when we first started using iPhones, you know, sure. 2007. And so the dynamics of how we purchase goods and services today has changed dramatically. And yet this continues to be the backbone of how brand owners protect their rights. And so even though Fritz and all these other um, congressmen who, who were supportive of this law didn't know what our world would look like today. They created a law that has lasted the, you know, decades of time. But as we, as we move forward, like, you know, for example, now Apple is selling iPhones all over the country, you know, using the example and the illustration you just made, or, you know, Joe, when you talked about Coca-Cola, they have been selling all over the world. How do you think our trademark laws are going to, do you think it's robust enough as it is to survive this type of global push? Or is there going to have to be some kind of systemic change to that? No, it's a challenge. I mean, this is one of the most, most interesting areas of the law because IP rights are territorial sure. in nature. And so when I have a right in the United States, that does not guarantee me a right in another country, China right. or Mexico or the EU. And so that's, Again, another really interesting reason why I like practicing in this area, because mm -hmm. you get to work with so many different cultures and people, and there, there are different laws. But what's really great is I think you do see a uniformity across international law. And that's why Joe is saying 
everybody, even non-American practicing lawyers, know the name Lanham. This Mm. statute has been a model for other countries. The U.S. trademark has been a model how other countries can have a robust system for for all brand owners. And for brand owners, the most important thing is consistency, right? You want to be able to go in and consistently protect anywhere in the world Mm-hmm. where your trademark is being misused. So Joe, Joe, from your, cause you're a litigator. So you, you know, you're probably seeing this from, from, from the front lines of the battlefields on this. So, right. And uh, so the front lines are really, you know, from a global standpoint, it's at the border, you know, goods coming in the border that are coming from other countries that are maybe counterfeit goods, maybe palming off goods that look like that are lookalike goods. And so we rely on the federal government U.S. border customers uh, to control to help us control that the border and products, counterfeit products coming into the country. It is a massive scale, the amount of products that are counterfeit in this in this world. And massive. let's not let's not miss out on one of the most important reasons of why trademark protection is so critical is it's a safety issue. So think about pharmaceuticals coming mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a consumer and your doctor is giving you a pill to take to make sure you are healthy, you need to have confidence that there isn't something that's been added unintentionally that could do more harm than good. And so people, you know, of course, think about trademarks in, in the that they are sexy because we like clothes and cars and jewelry, but there really is a public aspect in terms of keeping consumers safe. And so we don't think about that every day, but that is front and center for a lot of companies. It's front and center for the federal government. And that's certainly the, the, the case uh, to Joe's point that this influx of potentially harmful products, you know, we want to stop those at the border because we need to protect our consumers and our citizens. And that's what the Lanham Act does. It helps lawyers. It helps the government protect consumers in the United States from getting adulterated products whether it's pharmaceutical products, batteries, uh, exploding mm-hmm. batteries. Remember the exploding battery sure. cases several years ago? I that did. was arrested at the border because they were able to enforce the law of the Lanham Act and other criminal statutes to stop counterfeit and, and defective uh, uh, adulterated products coming in the country. So it's an extremely important consumer protection law that not only protects against consumer, protect, uh, consumer confusion, but also counterfeit products coming into the country. This is fascinating. I started out thinking, gosh, what, what are we going to, what can you really say about trademarks and the Lanham <laughs> Act? And now I want to talk about this for, for the rest of the day. This is, this is interesting stuff. Unfortunately, we are running right at the end of our, of our allotted time. To I would like to make one last plug. Please. If people are interested in learning more about the Lanham Act, learning more about Fritz Lanham, there's a terrific opportunity coming up on June 17th and 18th. And FYI, everybody. So, you're hearing this in September of 2021. This episode was recorded in June of 2021. So Joe, please continue. And for anybody that wants to access this material, it will still be up on the website of www.lanum75.org. So it'll still be up there, but just understand we're talking about something from the recording standpoint. So Joe, please continue. There's going to be a virtual online celebration of the 75th anniversary of the the Lanham Act. The first day on June 17th is going to be a trademark boot camp. And that's 
for anybody who wants to just kind of get introduced to trademark law, to understand a little bit more about it, this is all free. It's eight hours of free, free CLE. And then we're going to have a live trademark trial and appeal board hearing. It's just a judicial body that hears and decides administrative proceedings at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And then the next day on June the 18th, which is Friday, uh, there's going to be a state of the office interview with the regional director of the USPTO and also the acting director of the USPTO. And then we have a blockbuster panel discussion headed by Molly Buck Richard of Dallas. She's going to be interviewing Lisa Blatt, who argued the Bookings.com case oh, sure. before the That's right. United States Supreme Court. Dorian Daly, general counsel of Oracle. Oracle just moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. And so she's agreed to participate in this panel discussion. Mary Boney Dittison, the former commissioner for trademarks. Michelle Lee, the vice president of Amazon Web Services and the first sure. woman acting director of the, uh, I'm sorry, director of the USPTO. Chief Judge Barbara Lynn of the United States District Court for the Northern sure. District of Texas. And the Register of Copyrights, Shira Pullmutter, is they're going to be on this panel discussion about strategies for success in the world of IP law. And it's really a, a much broader topic than that. I think it's just strategies for success as being a really good lawyer. www.lanham75.org. Oh, Lanham75, okay. for the 75th anniversary of the Lanham sure, Act. So we just made that really easy. The other thing that's going to happen on the, on, the, on the Friday, June the 17th, is the USPTO agreed to do a documentary about the 75 years of the Lanham Act. And I've, I've seen some cuts of this. It's a beautifully done documentary film. Very cool. That's, that, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like the perfect way to close out our discussion. So, Joe, thank you for sharing that. And to both Joe and Craig, I want to thank you both so much for reminding us of the importance of trademark protection and also talking to us about some of the specifics of trademark law and you know, this has been a, a trip down memory lane from a historical perspective as we commemorate 75 years of the Lanham Act. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Rocky. Thank you for having us. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in and encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.